welcome to this week's episode of Reading with the Lights Off, where I am joined by indie authors to talk all about books and romance. This episode may contain explicit content, so grab those earbuds. I hope that you enjoy this week's episode. episode title we use the word fuck all the time i do too so i i agree yeah well on that note welcome to this week's episode of reading with the lights off my name is ali and i'm so excited to welcome bronwyn back on the podcast for this bonus episode b hello (laughs) me who has forgotten how to sorry go ahead and introduce (laughs) has forgotten how to be a normal human being and be on a podcast and how to I know the <laughs> um, pandemic will do that to you yeah well I also watched the Bo Burnham special so <laughs> all right well this week we're really excited to welcome Damon Suede I'm gonna let him introduce himself now because he's gonna introduce himself better than I ever could thank you guys and I'm so psyched to be here um I am for those of you who don't know I am a romance author I write uh, gay romance. Um, my audience is primarily straight women, but um, I have actually, ironically, well, no, you know, it's funny. They say, uh, well, that we'll get into that about what the audience yeah. is, but I have been writing romance for the last 10 years. Um, I came to fiction from film, theater, and comics. So I came in sort of through the back door and um, I had sort of a, a freaky career in romance because my first book became an immediate bestseller and stayed sort of number one for six months, blah, blah, blah. And so I kind of went to my agent and was like, I don't want to write movies anymore. And I fell in love with the genre. And so I've been kind of splashing around in the oceans of genre fiction for the last decade. And I love it. I mean, I love it as a writer. I love it as a reader. Um, I teach a lot. I teach a lot of writers at different uh, skill levels. And I love theorizing about it. I mean, that's actually what I'm excited to do today is I like to think about sort of the ecosystem of entertainment because fiction is part of the show business and part of the entertainment economy. And I think that we're at a very exciting, weird, distressful time in the entertainment economy. Um, (laughs) So we're like surfing, we're surfing a big wave. We are riding a dragon. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Well, um, I think that first of all, we have to talk about Hothead, which is one of my favorites. And I think that's the one you're referring to, Uh right? When you talk about the one that sounds right. My first book. Long time. Yeah. And so um, listeners of Training Pages know it's one of my favorites. It's um, so Hothead is Hothead was a a dare. Um, I wrote Hothead literally on a dare. A friend of mine um, was working on a romance. I was actually working on a movie and she called me one night. Uh, My husband is a forensic investigator and he was out of town on a case. And and she called me and she said, listen, I'm kind of stuck on this plot on this erotic romance and I don't really know what to do. And I know you do a lot of sort of story doctoring for movies. Would you be willing to talk to kind of talk shop with me? And I was like, oh yeah, I love doing that. So we got on the phone and we're sort of going back and forth. And after about, I don't know, half hour, 45 minutes, she was like, you know, 
this is really stupid. You love romance so much. If you don't write a romance novel yourself, you're like the laziest asshole in the world because you totally <laughs> dig it, but you're not actually writing it. And I said, well, you know, I've never written fiction and I love it, but what do I know about it? Blah, blah, blah. And she said, the worst thing you can say to me, which is I double dog dare you. I dare you to write a romance novel. <laughs> and so Hothead was literally, it was a dare. I wrote it in six weeks. I sold it in two days and then it was number one for six months. And it was a, a fluke. Um, the story itself is sort of inspired by a, a true story um, by a, a, a friend of mine. That's what B told me like, yes, when she looked it up. I was the one who um, told it, her that so, when that first, when we did our podcast. So the weird thing about... <laughs> I I appreciate that. <laughs> I appreciate that. So so it's not literally a true story. Um, a friend of mine went through a phase of dating married firefighters, which was horrendous and totally soul destroying. But while this was happening, uh, she had a sort of liaison with a married firefighter. And one night we were upstate. I was working on a script. She was working on. She was writing literary fiction. And so they had just finished having very loud sex upstairs. He came down to the <laughs> porch, and we were kind of chatting on the porch, and. You know, we're doing the thing that guys do when they're alone, which is like trying to gross each other out with dirty stories. And so he's sort of like, yeah, and then she farted. And I was like, yeah, and then he puked. And so we're going through all this stuff and there's this, you know, we're getting grosser and grosser. And then about half an hour, 45 minutes in, he kind of leans in. We're drinking whiskey. He leans in and he's like, you know, I was in love with the guy once. And I was like, record scratch? Book? And he said, yeah. And this is like the straightest straight guy, like Staten Island in like... FDNY full on uh, firefighter in New York city. Right. And like outer borough, New York city. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he said, well, you know, this is this guy I kind of grew up with them. We were like brothers. We went to the rock together, which is where they train the FDNY guys. He was like, we worked in the same firehouse. We like banged the same broads. We had three ways all the time. And he said, you know, I, I never thought of it that way, but he said, I started having these weird feelings and I like I started noticing the way he looked and I sort of started paying attention to him a different way. And he said, then we we kind of had this weird three way with my wife. And then while we were having a three with my wife, like I kind of touched him and then she freaked out and then he freaked out and punched me. And I didn't really know what to do. And oh I went up getting a, I'm getting a divorce from my wife and I had to kind of leave. And this happened in June. And so like all summer, like I kept trying to get a hold of him and he wouldn't call me back. And my wife was so angry and I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. And then the towers came down and he died and I never got to tell him how I felt. And so I, when, so when my friend dared me, she said, you know, I, I think you should write a romance novel. I said, I know exactly the story I'm going to tell. I'm, it's the most romantic story I could think of. I was like straight New York firefighters who literally cannot be in love or they're going to die. Right. People are going to kill them. But yeah. it's so romantic and it's so there's tragedy built into it and all this other stuff. But I was like, I'm going to give them their happy ending because what would have happened if that friend had come out of the towers and not died? And so that's the germ of the story was this guy. Because what when he was telling me this story, the, I will never, as long as I live, forget the look on his face because I he was sort of famous in the firehouses where he worked for being crazy. Like he would run into, I mean, he worked at the nut house out in like deep bed sty, which is the scariest house in New York city. And he would like run into buildings and do this crazy shit that would get you killed. And no one could figure out why. And I was like, I get it. He wants to be dead. I was like, this guy is trying to commit suicide by building. And the, the more he talked, the more I realized like he couldn't even really process it. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to write that story. And so when I sat down, 
I knew exactly the story I wanted to tell. I knew exactly. And I wasn't going to bullshit it. Like I'm from New York. I, I, I mean, I grew up in Texas, but I mean, I, I've lived in New York for over 30 years and, and, um, I wasn't going to half-ass it just because it was a genre novel. So, like, no. I did ride-arounds. Mm-hmm. I went to the, I mean, I went to all the firefighter bars in Staten Island. It's funny when the book first came out, I got all this fan mail from firefighters that were like, "I want to know what hook and ladder you're with." And I was like, "No, no, I'm like a gay guy. I live in New York. I promise, I'm not." Oh, and they were like, wow. "Fuck you! I'm they speaking really my truth." And I was it. like, "No, no, yeah. I." They thought well because the slang, because the slang I was using, and it's because I knew all these guys because of my friend and because I had socialized with them so much. And so when the book came out, it. Um, you know, at the time, there was a lot of talk about sort of, quote, MM, yeah. right? MM is the designator, meaning male-male, for books that are about, like, homoerotic relationships, mostly written by and for women. I don't write MM. I actually think there's a big uh-huh. distinction between MM and, and gay romance because MM has very specific tropes. MM has a very, very narrow audience. MM only wants certain kinds of relationships and certain kinds of patterns and certain tropes, certain kinds of men. And it all there there's certain they're just i mean this is a larger conversation probably not for this podcast but what i write is a romance novel that happens to have two gay dudes yeah. and that's a very different thing and so like i get a lot of mm readers and that's awesome mm-hmm. i love that fandom but i also get a lot of just romance readers because one of the things that started happening was when that book came out i started getting readers that had never picked up anything homoerotic in their lives it was my and first I, yeah my, this was my, well, this my gay romance virginity my publisher did a survey they did a survey of thirteen thousand people that, that read gay romance and and mm and, MM. and uh, in that survey of thirteen thousand people i think it was 65 percent hothead was their first gay like was their first oh, wow. it, like broke their cherry because and i think it's honestly because of the kind of story it tells because it has yeah. a kind of a, a a scale to it and it's very i don't know loose well, and over and the like top and or as hot as it is it it does have like slow burn elements to it as well there's a lot of yeah. push yeah, yeah, and yeah. pull there's a lot of tension and so i like a room i mean all my books are all about that yearn back and forth because i feel like listen two attractive people like who cares i mean two hot people with a trust fund they fuck and they have orgasms every time they brush their hair who gives a shit <laughs> like i want to see i want to see passion i want to see something i want to see relationships that change people i think this is one of the big challenges in any genre like it's like you know if you're writing a mystery like someone dies who cares? Like, what? I mean, it's not like everyone's thinking, oh, no, Mrs. Witherspoon has been poisoned. <laughs> Who cares about Mrs. Witherspoon? I think every genre, you have to find the thing that, like, blows it open. And Hothead was a lightning strike, right? Hothead came out of nowhere. It broke all the rules. It set all these records. And then I was like, well, what do I do next? And then that's how I sort of fell into romance because it did so many crazy things for my life and my career and, and my creativity, you know? I feel like I have to call yeah I have to call out Allie right now because you were talking about the slow burn the last book that I made Allie read was like the slowest of slow burns um and it was a a gay romance at least in my opinion but like the romance is very very slow burn they don't even get together until the very are you talking about the boy love manga no no I'm talking about um Modazusha the the Chinese gays, those ones. Oh, of course. The master master of demonic cultivation, yes! of course. Yeah. You know Madazushi. Madazushi. Oh, oh my god. Wait, hold on. Chinese you're my, you're my new one. favorite person. Yeah. Hold on. Holy shit. I just got a Modazushi tattoo. Now we're cooking with gas. Hold on. That's my favorite. That is my favorite. <laughs> 
So one of my really close friends, Heidi Cullinan, is obsessed. She actually introduced me um, to Marazushi. And, and uh, I, you know, I obviously, because I write what I write, I know a little bit about Yaoi. I've obviously read and watched, I mean, I watched the anime and read the manga and read the light novels. But uh-huh. it's a, you know, again, it's sort of a genre unto itself. Light novels are a different thing. And they have different Again, different tropes, different patterns, different expectations. But one of the things I love about her, about that author as sort of a, a mind, and actually the new the new one that just came out is actually even more, is she loves to linger. Like she smolders and smolders and smolders and smolders. And see, for me, like that's, I'm a Jane Austen freak, man. <laughs> I, persuasion is my jam. I want to have a relationship where they fucking earn it. And so if you have two people that are like, I'm hot, you're hot, let's fuck. And then it's over on mm-hmm. page three. That's not a book. Mm-hmm. That's not even an article. It's like no! toilet paper for your cat. Oh, so, no. Yeah. And that's not to say you can't have dirtiness on page two, but make it mean something. <laughs> yeah, no. It's got to mean something. Yeah, see, that's that's what my criteria is, is that I, I always say that I don't like the romance genre. Well, it's, you know, it's funny. I had a, I had a, a, a friend who, when I was first, first, first writing Hothead, read the book and got really mad. And called and was like, oh, my God, you're going to totally kill them. You're going to kill them. You're absolutely going to kill them. I hate you. I hate you. And I was like, it's a romance novel. Spoiler alert. They're not going to die. There's a happy ending. But this reader was so convinced that the book was going to end sadly. That, to me, was the greatest compliment. Because as <laughs> Jude Devereaux, legendary romance author, once said, romance is the hardest genre because everyone shows up in the, in the aisle at Barnes & Noble. And they know how every book ends. There's no surprises. So you have to kind of do a magic trick every time. And so you have to keep them on the edge of their seats. You have to kind of surprise them. There's a new, if you're a mystery reader, there's a a book that came out um, a year and a half ago. Uh, It was published in England as the seven deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle. In the United States, it was published as the seven and a half deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle. It just got optioned by Netflix. They're doing an adaptation, blah, blah, blah. But it's a postmodern Groundhog Day country manor cozy mystery set in the 30s and it is the most mind-blowing like it's a thought experiment about what it means to write a cozy mystery what it means to be a detective what it means to suffer to die what the class system of the 1930s means class race gender all this stuff but it's also just a really good mystery right and so i feel like you have to push those things it's actually what i love about asian fiction in general is that the i mean a because it's a culture I'm not as familiar with, a lot of times it's so fresh. It feels so fresh to me just because I'm not familiar with it. But then simultaneously, they take these crazy risks, the authors, because the fandom interacts with them differently, right? A lot of those Mm -hmm. books start as web novels, and then they're published, and then there's a manga, and then there's an anime, and then there's a television show, and then there's a film. So it keeps building, 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 and the whole way the fans are there like riding the dragon, it's different here. The The fandom is different here and the, the, the give take is different. Um, it's actually what I love most about the genre is the fans are so participatory. They'll come right up to you and they'll say like, I hated that guy or she was nice or that was hot or I didn't like that. And so you get this immediate feedback and coming from theater film, I love that, man. I live for that, having immediate response. So I'm not waiting because something's in the camera and I got to wait for it to shoot. 
<laughs> oh, I love it. I, I, that is the good majority of what I enjoy reading is the, is the Asian type novels and the Asian fiction and, and like the BL Yaoi or whichever you want to classify it as. I do want to yeah. just come out and so say Yowie, that. Yaoi Bara. Oh, uh, sorry. I, I, so I, I am actually um, a homosexual woman. So I feel like I should like th- sprinkle that in there that I read a lot of gay romance as a gay woman. So that's always confusing for people. But I, I read them because I, I enjoy you, the stories. I was raised. <laughs> I was raised by a very out lesbian. My first romance novels were lesbian romances. I actually just did an event with Sarah Waters in Stockholm. Um, she did Tipping the Velvet, um, Fingersmith, etc. Fingersmith is one of my favorite novels of all time. But so, like, I, I'm picking up what you're laying down because I agree. I think there is something to be said for, I don't know, it's not queerness, it's like otherness in romance. Mm-hmm, and I actually think, mm-hmm. weirdly, a lot of the best gay male romance is written by lesbians because of the detachment of the sort of awareness and it's almost i mean not to get all lit gritty it's almost brechtian because they're stepping back and they're like what is the nature of maleness what is the nature of intimacy what is the nature of desire and so instead of being like it was hot i stuck it in eight inches squirt who cares that's that's all boring and instead what you get is you you get this like thoughtful kind of meandery and like a regency romance right like austin like georgia Hare, you get this sort of um, thoughtful rumination on the nature of desire. Uh, frankly, the best gay romance that I know of in the world is written by straight women, what I, which I also find very, very weird because that really shouldn't be. But I think it's because ultimately gay romance is not about LGBTQ people. I think it's about desire with agency. Mm-hmm. That if you've been reading het romance your whole life, there are all these tropes that say women have to do certain things and one person holds the door and one person picks up the check and one person's on top and one person goes down on you. That's all gone in a gay romance because you show up and you're like, I don't know who's going to be on top. <laughs> who's going to pay? Everything is like up for grabs. And so if you're an artist and a woman, you're like, fuck it. Yeah, it's like all male adventure playset. Like you can do anything because everyone has agency. And simultaneously, because it's LGBTQ in topic, you're deconstructing the patriarchy. I mean, not to, again, not to get all lit gritty, but you're like pushing back against the man while foregrounding the man. No, this is so all it's great. Like, this is all, it's all the things you want. It's like two heroes. It's that- yeah. And like, cause I, I definitely find that I gravitate and the, and like, I've just been voraciously consuming male, male romance and gay romance. And I'm like, I don't know why I love this shit so much, but like, I just keep like consuming it and I like it better than hetero romances that I read a lot of the time. And then even when they do go into like hetero <laughs> My publisher has a T-shirt that she's had. She's been giving away for 15 years. And the T-shirt says the only woman on earth that doesn't love gay romance is the one that hasn't read it. Because ultimately, yeah. it's not really about, I mean, although it's obviously LGBTQ centered, it's really about the nature of desire. Mm-hmm. And it's the trick of gay romance is it allows you to talk about an othered population with respect and affection and admiration, all those things. But it also lets you play with all these norms, because let me tell you something, just because they're big and hairy and scary and butch doesn't mean they're not like a delicate petal in the sheets. Mm -hmm. Just because they're a big Nelly girl doesn't mean that they're they're not the butch's top. You don't know. You don't know. That's the thing. We don't know about desire. I have a friend who's in his 80s who used to say, you never know what happens when the bedroom door closes. Nobody knows. And the trouble with a lot of romance is not only does romance think, you know, 
it insists that if you are not doing what everyone else is doing, you're doing it wrong, which is actually weird <laughs> if you think about it, because sex is different with different people, let alone between different sort of orientations and genders. So there is like a, I don't know, like there's a weird freeing, there's a, a freedom in it. I, I think artistically there's freedom as a creator, but then for the reader, it's freeing because you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know where you're going to, where the, where the story is going to take you. Um, and, and I will tell you what pe- what fans say is once they start reading it, they can't go back. Um, can I ask you a question? Because you talked about the sort of the Japanese, you know, about, about the sort of like the weeb fandom and things like that. Are you aware of the discourse that happens in like on Twitter and with like manga and anime and Japanese fandoms that say that like women fetishizing gay men is like very bad. And like, they, they say that women should not be allowed to read male, male novels or mangas or things like that. And like the Fujoshi as they're called are like bad. Have you heard of that discourse? Like, right. (laughs) Of course. No, I mean, have I heard of it? I've watched it up close for the last decade. I mean, I'll tell you, this is a larger, again, it is a complicated issue because it involves so many different vectors. And a lot of them are vectors, in, including populations of people who've been treated like shit for a long time. So, for example, a lot of gay men hate gay romance, not because it's about gay people, but because it's not actually written by, for, or with gay people. It's really for an audience of straight women. Weird fact I happen to know because my publisher did research. Um, the average gay romance reader has an audience that's about 90% straight women and about 10% gay men. That's the majority, right? My readership is about 63, 64% women, and the rest are men. And of my men, half of them are straight. My straight readers aren't reading me because they want to know how to fuck a guy in the ass. <laughs> they're reading me because they're like, you fall in love like a guy. You talk like a guy. You write like a guy. This is how I fall in love. This is what I. And so I'll have these like, and I don't mean like they're sort of straight. I mean, I know they're grandkids. They read it not because they want to read about gay people, because they want to read about love that isn't sort of feminized. And I feel like that's part of this conversation in the same way. I would never tell an author, no, you can't write that. You know, it's funny. I don't know if you saw We Need Diverse Books just came out with a statement on the 6th saying that they're no longer going to use own voices. Um, They feel that own voices has been co-opted, but I think it's actually long overdue. I mean, own voices was started in the YA community um, to uh, Kareen Dyler, I can't remember her name, but um, uh, it was started as a recommendation. I mean, it was a recommendation thread on Twitter. It has now become this weird purity test, which is so idiotic that people are now telling you what you're allowed to write and not allowed to write. And one of the weirdest things is you'll hear, you'll have people that will say, I'm allowed to write anything, but you gay people can't. And so like, I have heard, literally heard straight women telling me I'm not allowed to write women while they are writing gay men. Or I've also heard women tell me gay romance is not for gay men. I should fuck off or that gay readers should fuck off. Now that's defensive, right? Because what they're saying is like, you've shamed me for my pleasure. And so I'm going to shame you. That's juvenile. That's like what people do in seventh grade. But at the same time, I think that the feelings are real. And so the conflict you're talking about on Twitter, I think it comes from a real place. I think it's based in bullshit and simplistic understandings of gender and orientation. And so 
yes, obviously, there are some books that totally exploit the LGBTQ experience so that like a woman can rub one out. That sucks, right? But there is also plenty of lesbian porn that is made for straight guys. Like, how many times have you watched lesbian porn where it's like French wrap nails jammed in someone's <laughs> chichi? Ow, yeah. for God's sake, ow. And so you have to, you have to decide what you're willing to kind of tolerate, not in terms of topic, but in terms of crappy writing. Because I actually think that debate is not about like who's allowed to write what, it's actually who can write what. Because let me tell you something, Tennessee Williams wrote great women. He wrote great women. Lillian Hellman wrote great men. That does not mean that she is a man or he is a woman. The idea that own voices is some kind of litmus test always, in my experience, comes down to envy. It comes down to people saying, well, why did she look at the American dirt saga? Why did she get the contract and I didn't get the contract? Right. And so I have a thing, you know, it's funny. I do a lot of marketing classes with authors. And one of the most common things you see with authors who are frustrating their careers is they'll say, why not me? Why not me? Why not? Why didn't I hit the New York Times? Why didn't I get the contract? Why not me? Why not me? Why didn't I get the movie deal? Uh, uh, minor key, wine, wine. My thing is, if I'm going to go into a career and I want to not hate myself and hate my career, I want to go in with like joy and generosity. And so my question is always, why not? If I didn't hit the New York Times list, why not? There's a reason. It's a number. Let me figure it out. And more importantly, why not? I'll give it a shot. If you go into things, hopefully, you actually wind up giving yourself a chance to succeed. If you go in yeah. envious. That toxicity will just C.S. Lewis once said, it's like drinking poison. And like, and it'll never let go. No, it's... it's C.S. Lewis once said, it's like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Mm -hmm. It does. It leads nowhere good. And so like I have seen those arguments. They come, I would say it's cyclical. It happens about every six months. Though a group <laughs> of people will say, you're not allowed to. And what I want to say is, fuck you. <laughs> no one gets to police anybody about anything. But I'll tell you something. Nobody owes anybody anything because if the book sucks, yeah. nobody has to buy it. I did a panel for the New York Times for about, I don't know, six years, seven years at New York Comic Con every year. And it was about LGBTQ representation in comic books, right? And because I knew that world and I'd worked in that world and I said, blah, blah, blah. I did this panel for years. And every year, a kid, usually someone between 16 and 20, would stand up and say, what can we do to get more diversity, inclusivity, equity in comic books? And every year, I had a two-word answer. And it's the same answer buy them. The problem that we have is not that those books don't get written. It's that people have to buy them. Because let me tell you something. If people suddenly decided that they wanted nothing but tentacle porn on their morning television, they wanted nothing <laughs> but grannies knitting socks for wolves. If it made money, publishers I mean, would publish it. Like we've the problem got is, is that every planet barbarians like all over the place right Which, now. Which, by the way, brilliant series. Yeah. Oh, I love that series. Oh, so <laughs> well written. I've heard that. So well written. But it's <laughs> like giant. No, can I tell you, if you have not read that, she is such Ruby a great Dixon. author, right? Yeah. The the legend is that she's at yes, that she is actually a New York Times bestselling author writing under a, a pen name. But in truth, the craft of those books as an author. I literally tore them apart, looked at them to see how they were structured because they're so beautifully written, like for erotic sci-fi romance, genius, freaking genius. And the thing is, you can see not just the skill, but the love, like the willingness to experiment this kind of rabid appetite for newness. And the fans responded, right? The fans were like, hell yeah, I'll do that. Literally Horns my and entire blue and a weird sparkly is worm. nothing but Ice Planet Man. Barbarians right now. Dude, if you have not read them, well, like, go buy the first sure five and read like, them right now. I'm serious. You see a lot of like weird stuff nope, on TikTok. To. 
But like, but then I started hearing like the writing is legitimate. I found like it's really well written. No, and I'll tell you, I found them. I don't know if you know Eloisa James. Um, Eloisa and I've been friends for years and years, and we do we kind of do cocktails like twice a month, and we're always swapping books in, in a lot of genres. But Eloisa reads so widely; she's always finding cool new authors. She's who turned me on to Mariana Zapata. I had never heard of Mariana Zapata. Amazing! Oh my god, amazing sports romance. But it's all indie, and it, and you know it's so hard for people to get publicity and blah blah blah. And now Mariana and I are friends. Like, I, but. But I found Ice Planet Barbarians because Eloisa was curating a romance section for a bookstore uptown in New York called Book Culture. They had done a signing with her and they wanted to kind of nurture romance authors. And so they were like, give us romances. We don't want it to just be like Dukes and Barouches. And she was like, oh, yeah, hell no. We're going to. And so she went for it. It was like diverse and funky and inclusive and subgenres. And Ice Planet Barbarians was one of the series that she recommended sold like hotcakes. They could not keep those books in. And this is on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. So... I, you must read them. I mean, they are great. You know, They're insane. You finally and they are like convinced me because like I because I, I see a lot of stuff. I see a lot of different books and 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 all different kinds of, of things. But but I mean, I'm sold. <laughs> well, and Ken, let me tell you something. Kendall is dodgy. Yeah. There is some dodgy nonsense mm-hmm. going on in the world of. And I always say this is the distinction between like I say there are people who type. And there are people who write, yeah. right? And there are a lot of typists in this world trying to make a buck. And it sucks for the fans because I always say, if a book sucks, you just killed that person's likelihood of ever picking up that genre again in their lives. Because they feel, as you said, they feel betrayed. They feel betrayed. I mean, how many times have I read a book and I'm like, never again. Because ne- you've been conned. Yeah. And there's been a lot of discourse, like as well as in the TikTok and Bookstagram community with indie authors. And they're like, you can't have the same expectation for an indie author as far as like editing and blah, 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 because there's a certain number of acceptable mistakes in traditionally published. And, and there's like a lot of a back book, and forth. And I'm here to but, tell you, like, yeah, indie authors are of, just as capable of editing. Some, I have yeah. to tell you, a lot of big five books are have crappier editing than indie books, have crappier covers. I think that all that is sort of like smoke and mirrors from the days back in the, back in the old days, eight years ago, when everyone was pretending that there was some difference. Well, and right. I think it's to try to explain the why me, and, and it's like, well, why not me? And be like, well, why won't people? And you right. know, people won't take me seriously, and it's not my fault that I can't afford to pay for an editor. It's not my fault. It's like, no, like you have to find a way because, like, it, it only takes a couple of indie books Dude, that somebody gets, Ruby and they're Dixon. just like they're choppy and poorly edited. Ruby and there's like typos all over the place, and you can and actually see like, as that series develops, you can see when she's altering links to play with the formats that Amazon is favoring. You can see her and it's as an artist, right? As a writer, it's fascinating because it's like looking at how a roller coaster gets built. Like I always say a book is like an emotional roller coaster, right? Mm -hmm. You show up, you strap in and at the end you're going to unbuckle and get out and no one has lost any limbs, right? It's a safe, but emotional ride. The thing is, if you're a skilled craftsperson, you don't study roller coasters by taking roller coasters and riding them a whole bunch. You go and you look at the rivets. And if you, as an author, look at Ruby Dixon, you can see all that engineering that she's done, that like beautiful prep that lays out things of the world building, of the eroticism, of the dialogue, the POV. Like She does all this stuff to kind of breadcrumb all the readers into the witch's house. Because let me tell you something. The readers, readers of different publishers are different. Readers at different vendors are different. And Kindle has sort of 
altered what people think of as a book. I know I was saying this before we started taping that it's like a homophone, right? The word art is like old pantyhose. It's been stretched Mm -hmm. over so many legs. It doesn't hold its shape anymore. And so like I say art, you say (laughs) art, we mean totally different things. It's a homophone. The problem is, is that if I go on Kindle Limited and I'm like, save as PDF, I'm done. Yay. It's a book. That doesn't mean it's worth reading or worth a dollar ninety nine or whatever it is. It's my job but as a But literally anybody can go on to KDP and yeah. upload it. There's no checks and balances. There's no and gatekeepers, so, which in some ways is good. But, but in also some ways is drecky because now the gatekeepers are the readers and the readers are overwhelmed with dreck. And so what's happened is it's it's the Wild West, right? It's gladiatorial combat. Because in the in the most it's all meritocracy. If a book nails it if a book blows up people are going to talk about it the number and this goes back to i mean in the entire history of advertising the best way to advertise something word of mouth positive word of mouth is always the thing that sells a book always 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 and so if a book is good they tell people i remember when the hate you give was first being circulated in arc i got a copy from a friend of mine that worked the publisher and i had heard about it because another friend of mine who was an editor had rejected it and was really sad she had to reject it but it didn't fit with their list But I started hearing about that book 18 months before its pub date was announced. And that the word of mouth. The idea of the hate you give being uh, rejected. Like, oh my God. Repeatedly, repeatedly. But here's the thing. Angie Thomas is such a great author. That book is such a beautiful piece of fiction. Mm -hmm. And the thing that's dumb is people are like, oh, it's an issue book. No, it's not. It's a beautiful book. And it happens to be about some really painful, important, timely stuff. But the book itself is really beautiful. She's a really great writer. She's also incredibly smart and charismatic and gracious and all the other stuff. But the truth is, if that had just been a book about, you know, Black Lives Matter and it was a piece of shit, it would have done nothing. The word of mouth on that book was explosive. That doesn't mean that I can go out. You know, this happened with Twilight. It happened with Fifty Shades where people are like, all right, vampires, all right, spanking, whatever, wizards, why not? The thing is. All that hotel writing. <laughs> BDSM is a thing. Everybody's right. making money on BDSM no, right but now. The, the problem with that is, is that you ride coattails. That means you're always in the back. You're always the caboose. You're the first thing that falls off the cliff when the, when the rails go wrong on the mountain. And so as an author, what a weird choice to make to say like, eh, I'll just follow along behind and wait for someone else to kill me. No, I mean, this is where you have to make a decision. And I think this is a, a challenge for authors in a world in which the authors on KU are now saying you have to publish a book minimum every six weeks if you want to stay on those lists so you can keep making your bonuses oh and you can six weeks. By the way, yeah, Madame Bovary releasing like crazy. Madame Bovary took 11 years to write. Rebecca took seven. I mean, th- th- and obviously that's a different thing and fiction has changed and we all write at different speeds, whatever. But the idea that you could write anything worth reading in a couple of weeks. I know people that are publishing a book a week. And you can imagine, I mean, I'm using quoting fingers when I say a book, because what that is, is like something I would use to line a birdcage. And listen, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this person <laughs> is, is Ibsen and Austin and the Bronte sisters rolled into one. I'm going to bet not, because at a certain point, you also burn out and you've got to take a break. And I think this is one of those challenges. If you look at- Well, I don't know why. Like, if you're just going to write it up and post it, like, why don't you just go to Wattpad? Like, that's what, you know, and then, like, occasionally, like, I'll get- You don't get paid. Yeah. 
It's money. I guess that's true as well. Yeah, because like I was even getting like DMs from an from an author on I put in quotations like on on TikTok, and they were like, and they had no published like videos. Like they're not participating. They're not like engaging with people, and they're literally just like mutual friending people to message them and say, "Hey, buy my book." Ooh, and ooh, like I went worst. and looked them up. Like their t- their title was like the same your title as like five other people. Like you, I, I couldn't even find their book. Like they did not have like good tags. They did like, there was barely any blurb. And I was like, okay, like, yeah, it's a little hard to find. And I'm like, and they're like, yeah, I got shadow banned. And I'm like, well, you don't have any videos. And I'm like, well, they weren't getting good views. So I was getting shadow banned. So I took them down and I really wish I didn't have to do all the marketing stuff. And like, I could just sit back and, and just write stuff. And I'm like, you can literally do that just do that and put it out on Wattpad. But, like, but, instead of like then spending all this time messaging people to be like, hey, buy my book. There, I'll tell you something. There's this, <laughs> there, I, again, I talk about this with authors all the time when I'm doing like a marketing workshop is there's a great book. It's a terrible title. There's a great book called Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind. And it talks about the fact that that book was literally workshopped and built like an object. It literally was crafted and sold and marketed and promoted by Mitchell and her family. That wasn't the publisher. That was her. There's a great book about Charles Dickens called Charles Dickens as Serial Novelist. Talks about the fact that Charles Dickens was promoting his work. Lovely Me, which is about Jacqueline Suzanne. Do you know how she made Valley of the Dolls a success? She got in her husband's Buick and drove around the Northeast. Because if you signed a book at a bookstore, they couldn't return it. So she made it a bestseller. This bullshit that authors magically become bestsellers, that publishers in the distant golden age used to rush out with like a, like no. a, a silk sack and hold your testicles and walk you to the shelves. That's a crock. The truth <laughs> is that readers want books and books need selling. And it's I always say books are part of the entertainment business. And that sucks because a lot of writers are not super extroverted. But I'm here to tell you, you don't have to be an extrovert to connect with fans. You don't have to be. I mean, I'm a loud person and I'm a talkative person, obviously. But I I have friends <laughs> that are super introverted that do have do wonders with their fans because they're so genuine and they're so they're so personal. And I feel yeah. like. One, and you can smell that a million miles away. Oh, of course away. you can. Authenticity, and man. somebody's being disingenuous. Well, the thing is, mm-hmm. the readers feel the fakery. They smell it from 50 miles away. And so the minute you hustle them, the minute, well, it's like you said, you pick up a book that has a gorgeous cover and the first three chapters are stellar. And then page one of chapter four, it falls off the cliff. You're not going to stick that in the shredder. You're going to nail it to a wall, draw a circle around it with an arrow that's like, this is flaming shit. Don't go near it. So not only have they I've, killed yeah, word of I mouth, read that author you ever are now again. going, well, no, you're going to go tell other people this is garbage. And so like, if I'm thinking as a branding, like as a branding exercise, I don't want to brand myself as worthless shit that is used as a warning to others. No, no. Oh, no, sorry. The the delay happened again. No, I was going to say, I'm seeing it a lot in the reverse harem. And I think that's like the coattail riding thing again, where they like reverse harem is like big right now. Like that's the buzz. And some of it's, it's great. BDSM. Some of it's killer. And so it's the same thing where they're just like trying to like push out like a whole bunch and not really like work very hard on it. C.S. Lewis has a thing. He talks about the fact that it is very easy to cut stone. It is very hard to be a mason and it is next to impossible to build a cathedral. The problem is, is that most people in the world have no interest in building cathedrals. Think about it like a train. How many people want to ride the subway? How many people want to dig and build the subway? And the truth is, the authors that sort of bust out 
are digging and building a subway. I mean, whatever people may think about Stephanie Meyer, Twilight changed the entire industry. Ditto J.K. Rowling. Ditto Suzanne Collins. I mean, she was a TV writer, but Hunger Games changed the industry. She built the subway. She built a train system and and leveraged all of her knowledge of entertainment. George R. R. Martin, right? Another TV writer, incidentally. But I mean, these people are not just sort of, it's not happening by lightning strike. It's not like they're walking down the stairs with an alphabet in a box and they drop it on the floor and they're like, oops, Song of Ice and Fire popped out. No, I mean, that that's work. And this is where I always say like, write is a verb, right? Like you have to write it. You have to actually sit down and do the work. And the idea that you sort of magically luck out and that magically things happen and then magically you become a zillionaire that's based on the idea that you can have something for nothing and that laziness deserves reward and that's gross (laughs) i mean i'm sorry that's vile and you hear the story like they always talk about lana turner right she was discovered at the top hat malt shop that she was like 16 and she was discovered all the time then like yay she's a movie star so that story is bullshit (laughs) she was 16 in high school having sex with a 47-year-old publicist who planted that story in the Hollywood newspapers and invented the idea that she had been discovered and called her a sweater girl because he had to find a way to get his 16-year-old girlfriend and her mammaries into (laughs) Hollywood in a way that would get her noticed. But the myth of the overnight discovery is horseshit. It's poison. And it, it teaches... Well, it teaches a lot of things. It teaches authors that there's like a magical code that they're going to solve and then everything is going to rain money, right? Everyone's going to have orgasms. Everyone gets diamonds. And then simultaneously, it teaches readers that like, who knows? It could come from anywhere. No, it can't. (laughs) No, it cannot. Yeah. It does not accidentally happen. Well, and it sounds like the authors that have been the most successful are the ones who really understand story structure. And, and it's not just about the characters. They really understand the plot. And I can I can sense that when I'm reading. Like, I can tell when when you're a planter or like a pantser versus a plotter. Because the pantsers is like, they're like meandering all over the place. And it might have some like interesting pieces and moments. But you can tell when like overall, like the plot well, like, falls you. apart. I, 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 there are some pantser authors that I really love, but I always say you cannot be a working author and be a lifelong pantser because every genre is a plot. Romance is in happily. That's a plot. Sorry, kids. Mysteries get solved. That's a plot. You're not pantsing it. You're pantsing portions of it. And so it's like when you plot, when you pants, right? My thing is you're going to have a structure and it's when you do it, but, but more than worrying about like when or how, like, because everybody has their own process, right? I never want to get up in the way of someone's muse. Who knows how people do what they do. My thing is the people who succeed tend to be the people who pay attention to the market, love their genre, listen to their fans, treat each other with respect, like aren't assholes, because I'll tell you, (laughs) assholery destroys a lot of people. And I don't mean just like being mean on Twitter, but I mean being crappy to your editor, being crappy to your publisher, being crappy to the bookstore, being crappy when you go to a signing at a library. I have seen, I I watched, this is, God, this is a long time ago. I was at a signing. This was in somewhere in the Midwest. I want to say St. Louis. I was at a signing, 500 authors. And I, you know, they had long rows and tables and everyone set up in big piles of books and everything else. And we were all getting set up. And I went to go pee at one point, right? So my assistant's staying at the table. I run to go pee. And one of my dear friends is like, oh, my God, the cornbread lady. And I was like, what are you talking about? This one author had decided 
that cornbread was her ticket to selling her book. And so she stood at the middle of one row of authors. It was, you know, probably 75 authors saying, would you like some cornbread today? Would you like a cornbread recipe? Would you like a cornbread recipe? Do you like cornbread? Would you like a cornbread recipe? I've got some cornbread for you. Would you like some cornbread? I've got cornbread for you. Do you like some cornbread? For four hours. And by the end, people hated her. And it's really sad because obviously someone told her she had to be quote outgoing. But she was trying to do something that she thought was useful. And no one could say to her, like, you're being rude. It's rude to the fans. It's rude to the venue. It's rude to your fellow authors. Because we all have to sit and listen. And by the way, she did not sell books, right? People people were fleeing, not just her table, that aisle was radioactive. Oh, no. And I think it's that weird. Well, the trouble is, what are you going to do? If you're a reader and you look down and there's that going on, you're like, oh, hell no. I'll go over there. I'll crawl through the sewer so I don't have to put up with that. <laughs> and so I think this is one of those things that like when you, you know, the, the, it's back to the like, why not me? Whenever people are like, well, I want blah. And I'm like, okay, great. Like, let's come up with a plan. But I think that's true. Like when you're writing the book, like when you're writing a book, I'm always like, I want to try something new. Like I get bored. I want to do something fresh. But I also know I have to meet certain expectations because I write genre fiction. Like I, if I'm writing a romance, that means a central relationship and it's going to end hopefully, period, the end, right? It has to end hopefully. It has to have a central relationship. I am not going to kill them at the end. That's bullshit. Thank you I am that, not going to set up a way. thing where it's like, no, I mean, that's a crock of shit. And whenever people say like, that's romantic, I'm like, yes, it is romantic. Like Romeo and Juliet, who died, who were teenagers who died. That's not a romance. <laughs> And so the idea that like you can fake that is not making you brilliant. It makes you an idiot that doesn't know anything about lit crit. And so the, the simultaneously, there's like a certain amount of respect for the genre and for the fans. Like fans aren't dumb. Fans know what's good. And they don't always, you know, it's, I have a friend who dated Carol Burnett for a long time. And she used to do this thing when you, you know, we'd go out to dinner after a show. And Carol used to say, the fans are never wrong. They never know why they know what they know, but they're never wrong. They know mm -hmm. if a show is funny. They know if a scene is sad. They know if someone's telling the truth. They know because it's authentic, right? They feel it. That, that empathy, that engagement is 100% there in them. And so your job is to shape that empathy and to access that empathy. And I feel like that's the biggest challenge, more than like parsing sentences and breaking down the structure and figuring out, yeah, sure, all that stuff, right? That's the surgery part. You got to figure out how to use a scalpel. But the root, the meat of it is learning to listen, like learning to listen to the fans and to the publishers and to the market and to your booksellers and listening, man, it's hard to do. That's a, it's a, and that's entertainment, right? That's any, yeah. and you want to know why we have 50,000 movies that are all the same movie. It's because it's nobody listening to anybody else. They're, they're all just <laughs> yeah. making whatever bullshit they want to make. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, to change gears just a little bit, because like I do have so much brilliance to share. I no, 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 it. no, no. Please hit me. No, but like I really want to hear about some of the the stuff that you have coming up. So I know that you've you've released some stuff, but then uh, we're gonna get a sequel to Hothead, aren't we? Like, oh no, no. Hot, here's coming? the funny thing: the sequel to Hothead has actually been written for about six years. Um, the problem with the it's called Hardhead. It's Tommy's story. Um, the problem there's two problems with it. One. It's too sad right now. It's been it's been too sad for the. It's a very it's a it's a romance. I mean, it ends happily, but there's like it has a it has a sadness in it that is not right for the genre and for the story. But more importantly, it is two hundred and sixty five thousand words long. 
It is too long and too sad. And so there will come a moment. And I always say like when people, cause I get people email me about this every week. I say, I promise it will be worth waiting for when it is done and proper. It will be worth waiting for, but it's honestly the only reason it isn't out is because I, I haven't been able to figure out how to make it the right tone, the sadness to dial it down. And by the same token, if I hadn't done the same thing with hothead, that nine 11 scene could have been, too sad right so it's like fine it's like cantilevering yeah, it right absolutely so it's a tricky balance so there's so well because like and i'm excited oh sorry no, i was gonna say i'm excited because like i want to see i want to see more of griffin dante oh, of too because like there's some things teased at the end of like and, and i love stories and series where we get to get peeks at oh no they're major characters they are i don't major... want just that fade out well, think about it it's they're major characters. i want to know what their life is like well and think about it too like what is it like to be gay in the FDNY? What would it be like to be mm-hmm. in a community where people literally get killed for being gay? And so yeah. I was at a, it's funny. This is a, when is, when is hothead set? Like, well, obviously 2000, it was set in 2011. 2011. It was set in 2011. And the, and hardhead yeah, is set in 2012. It's set exactly one year later. It just is going to be nine years okay. late. Yeah. But, um, but the, mm-hmm. but the, um, what I was going to say is I was at an event here in the city and there is uh, very famously one of the big chiefs in the FDNY has a trans daughter named Brooke. And I had written about Brooke and uh, had done stuff. And Brooke came up to me and said, I know who you are. And I was like, how do you know? Her? And, sh- and she said, uh, you're the hothead guy. And I said, I sure am. And we had a, it was really a cool conversation <laughs> because obviously trans in the FTNY in the early 2010s like it it was a that's an intense journey and it's and the book is not about trans identity that's not really the story but it was really about how dangerous it was for people that kind of bucked the system right so it's there it exists it just I got to finish it and make it you know not a, a tearjerker well, I, I'm waiting anxiously for oh, it. I, I'm, I'm definitely, I want to know what happens to them. <laughs> but they are, but Griff and Dante are major so, characters. Um, they are major so characters. do you want to talk about like any other stuff that you have? Like, um, So I, I have, yeah, absolutely. So I have, um, I have a couple things that have been sort of um, on pause. I had a, a giant personal kerfuffle that sort of blew up last, as I think you know, last winter that I had to navigate a bunch of other people yeah. acting like lunatics. And so I put everything on pause really because I was afraid for my life. And so um, I've got uh, two projects, Prince Charmless, um, which is a, a royal romance. It's a um, about a gossip columnist and a, and a bad boy prince. It's so it, that's called Prince Charmless and Prince Charmless um, was originally scheduled to come out in January of 2020. And it's just been delayed um, until I can get um, all the bits in place. And then um, and then I have some other shorter stuff that I want to do. I have a follow up to Lickety Split called Slowpoke. Uh, Lickety Split is a it's an erotic romance, May, December. Um, and so it's set in East Texas. And so Lickety Split will be followed up by Slowpoke. And then, um, so I'll have, that's a sequel. And then I have, um, uh, well, I have several short things that I've been working on. And then I also have, Bad Idea is uh, my comic book book. That's about a comic book creator who falls in love with a monster makeup designer. And um, that series, um, there are two series that work in tandem. There's the Itch series and the Scratch series. Um, Because the Itch series is 
uh, about these artists who are working on a comic book that's about a sex demon. And then the Scratch series is the story of the demon. So it's like a paranormal. So, but they're kind of braided together. And so um, those. I was going to say that it's a little supernatural, a little paranormal, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. The first of those was called Horn Gate. A horn gate. Um, and so horn gate, bad idea was a pairing. And then I've got to do the other pairings in that series. I I haven't, I just haven't done anything with them because I've had so many other things going on, but it's, but so I've got stuff coming. I also, um, I did a bunch of nonfiction for writers. I teach a lot to writers. And so I had in a couple years ago, I had, I think two years ago, I had a book called verbalize come out, which is about how I structure stories and how I build characters, which is sort of different than the way most people do. And then um, because of my experience in film and theater. And then uh, I wrote a thesaurus based on that technique called Activate, this 296,000 word thesaurus giant thing that the students all asked me for. And so that took me quite a lot of time to build because it's almost 300,000 words long. Um, so just staying busy, man. I'm teaching a ton. Um, I'm looking forward to kind of getting back out into the world. I'm doing Rare next year. I'm going to be in Paris and in Edinburgh um, for the Rare signings. and. Oh, I'm so jealous. Rare is my dream. Oh, Amy's like, the going best. Going to Rare, it's that's the one that I want to do eventually. It's it's uh, She's just lovely, and it's such a great group of people, and the fans are so cool. And um, it's like a polycon. It's, you know, it's just a signing. It's very much sort of contained. But because of where it is, um, you get a different crew. I used to do, my publisher goes to Salon de Livre in Paris every year, which is like their big book event. And we would have fans that would come from Scandinavia fans that would come from morocco people would come from like so far away and because it's so rare for american authors to go over and so i love going to i mean i lived in london for a long time so i love going over and um so i'm really excited for rare um i'm excited frankly now that the pandemic is done to kind of get back out with the fans i love i mean you know me right i love interacting i love being with people and um and so i miss just frankly yeah. like hugging people i miss i miss kind of being in the room with people yeah absolutely i know my first conference uh, that i'm going to go to is shameless oh, in november yeah. and that one's in florida oh i know shameless i've done really shameless. excited yeah, yeah. it'll be my first time going to shameless it's lovely it's a yeah. great con i'm really excited it'll be my first time going yeah i've heard it's really, they're a really great good. group they're a terrific group really organized and it's a great um vibe um when you're there i bet you mariana will be there mariana zapata goes down there usually tiffany rice goes down. I, I know okay, a lot of people yeah. that go down pretty regularly. her name keeps popping up oh if you have not read it i start with the wall of winnipeg and me but that is she is she's uh ooh, she's amazing well she also has one about skaters that i anyway it She's great. She's great. But you froze up. What did you say? Yeah. Oh, no, I was just saying, like, I'm excited, too, for everything to be getting back somewhat. I mean, I don't know if we're really normal after after the pandemic and everything that happened. But um, I'm excited for all the fun projects that you have. And oh, thank you. um, I'm interested to know, like, where where you teach, because, like, I think that I mean, this this podcast is mostly for readers, but I know that writers also listen as well. Sure. I um, I teach, I mean, I, before everything locked down, I was teaching almost 40 weeks a, a year. I was teaching, I mean, all over the place, like <laughs> Europe, Alaska, <laughs> all over the United States. I was always on the road traveling because I can write wow. anywhere, right? So I was always, always traveling. Um, that's mm-hmm. going to obviously change. I've been doing a lot of teaching on Zoom. So if you follow, like my... um. My writing books are the Livewire Writer Guides, and so I have a Twitter account. If you go to Daily Verb, hashtag Daily Verb, I have a Daily Verb that I put out on Twitter, and it's easy to find me, um, but I, which tweets all my classes. But I do, um, 
I do marketing. I do cra- like career and craft. And I also do uh, this sort of technique, this verbal technique that I use. And I teach pretty constantly. I teach all over. I teach, I mean, I teach a lot of romance, obviously, because I write it, but I teach all genres. I teach memoir. I've actually taught high school kids. <laughs> like you, you know, I, so I wind up teaching all over the place. But if you follow my Twitter, it's, it's, um, I'm always tweeting about it. I'll always share it on Facebook, that kind of stuff. I'm pretty, uh, I'm not shy. I'm like mold. I never go away. So, um, I'm very findable, <laughs> but also people can always, That's why you're so fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. That's good. Fun or annoying, fun or annoying. No, I just like, I, I really appreciate your insight that you have like into the, the romance world. And I feel like we could probably talk for three hours about, you know, all the ins and outs of the romance industry. I know we'll have to have you back again. This has been a dream for me because I'm such a huge fan of yours. So I just appreciate you you coming on so much. No, thank you for having me. It's lovely to see you. I'd love you to meet you, Um, think. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> I've been quiet she because the delay it. has been so bad, but <laughs> I have just been happily listening and uh, enjoying um, taking it all in. So What's I know. And you, you found a fellow MDZS fan. Amen. So you guys, I'll have to connect to you via email and then you guys can talk about MDZS. I need to hook you up with her, Heidi Collin. Yes. <laughs> any, any MDZS fan I'm happy to talk to because that's, that's, yeah <laughs> that's her deep jam her deep deep jam yeah yeah, yeah we have we have a modal zishu episode of trading pages oh, wow. so cool. that was Good. i can't remember what i made you read for yeah i can't remember what you read with the week that i read mdzs but um i can't remember either something something with rooftop sex so <laughs> oh that was serpent and dove <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it was yeah, it was different, our MDZS different serpent. Than no, that's, issue, but that's yeah, what sure. That was. <laughs> that's kind of that's kind of the whole thing is like our our tastes are very. But that's good. <laughs> like they're very different. Let me tell you something. Right? Yeah, it's really fun. It's writers really fun. are always talking about writer's block, but I always say a a thing to always think about is: Are you blocked as a reader? What is your block? What are your reader's blocks? Because if you convince mm-hmm. yourself that you don't like cozy or you convince yourself you don't like, I don't know, inspirational or Westerns or hard sci-fi or whatever it is, you don't know what you're missing. And so, yes, I have my comfort reads. Yes, I have my go-tos. Shifter romantic comedy. Yeah, I'm trying to convince her. But I try to, <laughs> but you know, I try to sprinkle a little salt in the sugar. I like to mix it up because I think it keeps you fresh as a, I mean, not even as a writer, but just as a human. I think it's good to kind of keep something in the mix all the time yeah yeah well this has been so fun i i appreciate both of you so much for being here um yeah i'm gonna drop all of your socials and your website and all the information all the books we talked about in the show notes um but thank you so much and i think this is all the time we have for today um but thank you everybody for this bonus episode of reading the lights off thanks guys have a great day
you so much for listening to this week's episode of Reading with the Lights Off. Be sure to like and subscribe and leave me a voicemail on the Anchor app. I would love to hear from you. And remember, romance readers do it in the dark. Thank you.